welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's Book. Welcome back. As promised, um, this week's episode will be a somewhat lengthier one. This is only going to be one chapter out of my book because it is the longest chapter out of my book. As always, I will preface this podcast by saying if the whole concept of this chapter in my book sounds odd to you, it might be your first time here. If it is, let me introduce. This is a serial podcast where I read chapters out of my first book, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. And I would highly encourage you to listen to the other episodes of this podcast in this, I'll call it a season, uh, out of this book before listening to this episode, simply because they all build on each other. And this is the second to last episode of the body of the book. I will be recording the appendices that I have for the book because they help build the universe that this book exists in, but this is the second to the last episode of the body of the book. So I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to those other podcast episodes. Where can you find them? Well, you can find them over on iTunes or your favorite podcast application. Simply search Chris Pullman or Mystery and Deceit from Earth, uh, pardon me, or uh, search for Chris Reed's book. Either one should get you to this podcast feed and you can subscribe. Otherwise, if you don't do the podcast thing, but somebody gave you, you know, an MP3 file, and that's what this is for you, head over to narclaninc.com, N-A-R-C-L-A-N-I-N-C.com. Look uh, into the Chris Reads book section of the website, and you can get the raw MP3 files there. You can put them on an MP3 player, that sort of thing, and listen that way. Either way, if after listening to this podcast you have questions or comments that you would like to address to me directly, feel free to email me at chrisreadsbook at narclaninc.com or head on over to the website again. And I have links to social media over there, to Facebook and to Twitter, so you can uh, follow me there, like my page, that sort of thing, and leave me some comments out there on the social medias. This week... I will be reading to you Chapter 42, Spaceport Sheboygan. By comparison, the other podcasts that I've been recording so far have been about 16 pages worth of uh, material. This is roughly 26 pages, so it's going to be a longer episode, but I don't want to break it up because it is a self-contained concept and there's not really what I would consider a natural breaking point. So I'm going to read through the whole thing. You can always pause the podcast, come back to it later, or um, you know, pick it up another time if it runs too long for you. I know when I listen to podcasts like going to work, coming home, uh, I can always just pause them, and that works out pretty well, at least when you download them. I know my wife has, uh, when, when she is streaming them, it doesn't work quite that way, 
But hopefully you download these podcasts, share them with a friend, with a family member, with a co-worker, somebody who you think would appreciate this sort of science fiction novel. And uh, yeah, as we go forward, I'll continue editing this. And if it ever gets commercially published, I will let all of you know. In the meantime, let's get to the episode. Chapter 42, Spaceport Sheboygan. The government could not oppose the new, deafening will of the people, so they were forced to action. Calling together their tribunals, they yet did their best to keep Eric informed, to help him and the TDF. But he could read the writing on the wall. Just before the final battle with chaos, even James could see where the people's opinion was leaning. Beginning that day, spaceships had been commissioned through a forgotten company, NAR Defense, for the express purpose of aiding in spaceborne research. Many of the completed craft went missing, though. NAR filed complaints against the TDF, though such were but a few of those being leveled against the TDF those days. Most governments and citizens had at first found the thought of their government having no true standing army, of the TDF being the only Terran army and appealing one. But many of the most vocal detractors, secret civilian members of Chaos's forces, asked if it was worth the cost. Quickly the answer became that it was not. As casualties mounted in the war, so did opposition to the Terran government's trained dog, the TDF. Chaos's little farewell speech only served to fan the flames. And then there was Nuremberg. Even before final pronouncement was handed down, top aides in the government had sent Eric back channel messages all saying the same thing. Time's up. With what reserves the TDF had left, they purchased in ready transports for the long journey Eric saw ahead of them. Official pronouncement came quickly and was accepted, if begrudgingly, graciously. The TDF facility, built near Plymouth, intentionally so, was the gathering place for the remaining TDF forces. Even with their non-nanitic combat and support personnel, TDF personnel globally now numbered only around 15,000 people. At its peak, the TDF had commanded some 300,000 conventional troops, elite troops, and support personnel. The final months of the insurrection had exacted a terrible toll on the TDF. To know that for every surviving member of the TDF, 20 had died was sobering. With only 15,000 survivors, they all fit easily into the Plymouth TDF complex that had once housed the 16,000 personnel of the Command and Control Division. Not only was it large enough, it was also close to the spaceport in nearby Sheboygan where all their acquired spaceships were being housed. Their exodus would come soon enough, though it was still painfully too soon for Eric. Eric started putting together the exodus from the CNC center at the base, but simply was not content sending out orders. So he had gone out around the base to help where he could, his aides taking care of logistics and contacting him as needed. As Eric went around time and again, sensed the defeat and angst in all his personnel. They did what they had to, packing needed supplies and machinery on transports for the drive to Sheboygan, but only out of necessity. In such times of strife, Eric knew it was the leader's job to lift the spirit of his troops. But what could he possibly say to turn the loss of 285,000 comrades into a positive event? It could not be done. Trucks began leaving. It would take many trips 
base to space port and back to get all the gear onto ships. Melinda, still mourning her personal loss, was organizing the transfer of goods there, as well as maintaining a guard. Ever since the government's declaration of exile, citizens had assumed license to harass the remaining TDF forces. Having a guard made it less likely such harassment would turn into a physical assault. The Prime Minister, while working to salvage the global government's credibility, had racked his brain trying to come up with a compromise sentence acceptable by both Eric citizenry as well as the tribunals that would help the personnel of the TDF. In doing so, he had asked Eric for suggestions. Eric knew that no place on earth would satisfy the newfound wave of revenge. The TDF would have to be put off-planet. The moon, at one time, would have been ideal. But thanks to the advances in space travel made during the global peace between the Coalition and Insurrection Wars, the moon was now presenting entirely too tempting a prospect for colonization, even with Earth in its current state of disaster. People would go there, hoping a quick escape from their current struggles. Eric saw this. And then he realized that he actually had seen this future, Meng's powers manifest. Eric would trade this gift, this curse, in a heartbeat. But that was not to be. People would begin to colonize the moon, but Mars was still considered too far and too costly. And with the Terran government needing to focus on rebuilding, it would remain so for some time. That had been Eric's recommendation to the Prime Minister. Exile the TDF to Mars. The Articles of Exile were drawn, were drawn up, short and to the point. Whereas the Terran Defense Force, maximally made up of Atmo elite forces, is by nature a militant force with no other purpose. Whereas this world has seen tremendous and devastating war in which the TDF played a leading role. Whereas the various delegates assembled at Nuremberg, Germany, representing their constituencies from every continent and subcontinent, are in agreement. Therefore, it is ordered this 7th day of July, 2050, that the TDF will enforce on themselves exile from the planet Earth in perpetuity. Be it so ordered that this decree, by this decree all forces of the TDF, thus have 30 days from this document signing to proceed to their chosen destination, the fourth planet of the Sol system, Mars duly signed and witnessed by the below delegates. The Prime Minister had run the document past Eric before presenting it at the Council of Nuremberg to make sure the TDF would have enough time. They would, Eric having seen this outcome when the trials started three months prior. All that was left to do was to load the ships and leave. Eric was helping secure crates labeled NAR Defense onto a transport Inside the crates, he knew, were all the necessary materials for creating usable biodomes on the Martian surface. NAR polysteel glass, polysteel girders, insta-weld adhesive putty cement, airlock and air circulation equipment. These would go with and stay under heavy guard. Without these, they would have to use the transports as shelters until the Martian atmosphere was viable for human life. As the last strap went on, Eric called out to those around him, See? No problem. Practically there. Just to be sure, one of you threw the sunglasses in with these, right? He wouldn't deny them their right to mourn their loss, nor their exile, but laughter could move mountains. Hopping down, he shook everyone's hand before continuing on through the base. There was so much history of Eric's life here. 
He, James, and Adam had grown up and gone to school in Plymouth, Wisconsin, from which the project had gotten its name. They had been Cub Scouts together, had gone camping with the pack at Camp Rokolayo, located just north of Manitowoc County. After their passage through Cub Scouts, they had all joined the Boy Scouts, Troop 851, based right here in Plymouth. Even during college, the three of them would come back and enjoy drunken campfires getting food from Greg's Tap down Highway 57 in Adel. This was the place of Eric's childhood, his first kiss, where he learned to drive so much more, including the advances made at Project Plymouth, the old base so close by that ultimately led to NAR defense in Atmo. And now to his having to leave it all behind. His two best friends had killed each other, and now he had to leave behind the only place where they were still friends. It was nearly too much to bear. Involuntarily, his mind reached out toward Belinda, calling Imzadi. Startled enough himself at this mental outburst, Melinda's thought reply reaffirmed what he had done. Don't ever use that term with me, Eric, she thought back sternly. Tears welled up in Eric's eyes as Melinda's pain and grief echoed through and with her reply. Imzadi means beloved, and hers was dead. I'm so sorry, Melinda, Eric thought, closing his eyes as he tucked himself around a corner. It would help no one to see their CO break down in tears. How dare you speak to me like this? Only Jim and I ever... Her thought trailed off, rage followed by deep wonderment in it. He's there with you. The way she thought it, Eric knew she didn't mean with him physically. James was with him and would be so long as he lived. James' conscious mind became Eric's the moment he died. Eric lost control. Mel, I am here, James thought from within Eric's head. His voice was so calm and loving. Hun, it's okay. It'll be okay. You will be okay. I need you to do your job right now. Had Melinda had to say the words, she couldn't have. Jimmy, no. Trapped as an observer to the exchange, Eric felt every emotion. Hun, I need you now more than ever. You and Eric have to lead these people now. Like it or not, you are the only two of us left. Please, babe, James thought to her. Jim, I miss you so much she replied. Real emotion flowed from Eric's mind toward Melinda, sorrow and loss. I miss you too, hun, and I always will love you, but we can't change what's happened, only what will. You and Eric both have jobs to do, and I have to let you do them, but remember, I'm always here. Jim, I love you. Melinda cried in Eric's mind. Gods, no, Eric mumbled aloud as tears flowed down his cheeks. He had to say it. He's gone back for now, Melinda. You bring him back, Eric. Bring him back, Melinda demanded. If I could trade places with him, I would, Mel. But he came out of his own accord and has gone back the same way. No words now. 
only sorrow over the connection they still shared. I'm so sorry, Melinda. He felt Melinda do the mental equivalent of wiping tears from her face, thinking, I guess that at least we should be grateful we both have something left of him. Are you going to be okay? Eric asked. Are you? She replied. He wasn't sure. I will be. Eric thought at her. Then came a more confident and composed Melinda. Let's get back to work. Just as Eric wiped the tears from his face, the comlink chirped. Commander? Go ahead, he replied. Sir, we're getting reports of some pretty heavy traffic on the main gate, the sergeant said. I'll head there now, he replied, pushing off the wall that had been supporting him. Bringing his focus back to the external world, he could hear a growing din from the direction of the gate. As he turned the corner of the final building between him and the gate, he saw the crowd. They lined both sides of the road exiting the base, standing in the back of pickups and on the ground, waving signs and yelling. So it begins, thought Eric to himself. He knew the crowds would come, though had hoped it would have been longer before they started arriving. There were only around 100 people at the gate. Still enough, though, to make the guards nervous. Eric walked over to the guardhouse, picking out the officer there, Lieutenant Late Lyme, Nate Lyman. Nate, Eric said, addressing the man as he walked toward him. Sir, came the reply as Nate spun around. Returning Nate's salute, Eric said, Things under control? More or less, sir. We're just kind of on edge. Understandable, Lieutenant. I'm going to keep some, keep some extra people on immediate standby just in case. But you won't need them, understand? You'll be just fine, Eric said. Sir, Nate acknowledged. He doubted the relative stability of the situation, but had faith in Eric. You just wait and see, Eric said, slapping Nate on the shoulder as he headed toward the other guards, shaking hands and giving them likewise reassuring words. Eric then turned his attention to the crowd. In it, he saw familiar faces. Why are they familiar, he thought. I don't know these people. But someone in his head did. He strode up briskly to one specific man in the crowd. Lewis. Eric addressed the man. What do you want, scum? Lewis replied, showing no shock at being addressed by name. I want you to cool it for a while. Your boss never ordered this. You're getting what you've been working for. Don't let this get out of hand. The words somehow struck a chord with the man. We're just here, the man began after a momentary pause, to make sure the government's orders are carried out. He finished, letting his voice carry over the whole crowd. Cheers went up around him, but his message had been directed at two specific people in the crowd, Harvey and Jackie. What he had really said was, take it down. He's right. We are complying with the government's orders and will be gone by the deadline, Eric replied in a calm, reassuring tone. We're just here to make sure of it. And if anything happens, if any blood is spilled, it won't be on our hands, Lewis said, spreading his arms to encompass the crowd around him. It was a warning. The spaceport was being targeted, not this base. 
You're not the only one who follows orders, Lewis added just loud enough for Eric to hear. We do appreciate the send-off, Eric said, managing a smile. He stuck out his hand toward Lewis as he said, I'm extremely sorry things turned out as they did. Lewis stared at Eric's hand for a moment before locking eyes with him, grasping his hand. As am I, Lewis said sincerely. The man, even as an agent provocateur, still had honor in him. Eric released his grip, turned, and walked back onto the base as the crowd once more found its voice. Nate, Eric called the man over as he got close. The one I talked to is named Lewis. He's the chaos agent in charge here. What he says goes with these people. He's going to keep this crowd from getting violent. Nate still looked unsure, though seemed to have gained confidence in the promise because of Eric's bold move into the crowd. Just keep a sharp eye and wits about you, Eric said as he headed back into the heart of the base, bound for the CNC. He had to arrange an extra couple security details be dispatched to the spaceport as soon as possible. It won't help, came a voice inside his head. So, sh so shocked by it was Eric that he stumbled, catching himself on the side of a base storage building. It won't help, the voice mocked. What's this now? Eric asked himself. This is your punishment for surviving, the voice retorted. Checking his surroundings and finding no one in the immediate vicinity, Eric merely whispered, Who is this? Who do you think? Chaos! Eric coughed, falling to all floors, floors as dry heaves racked his body. He closed his eyes, opening them, he found himself standing upon a floating boulder, nothing but darkness around him, as though a veil of black fog enveloped him chaos emerged through it likewise perched on a floating boulder he faced chaos full-on welcome to my inner sanctum chaos said i've pulled you here so that we could have a little chat others will join us soon enough for now it's a party for two he sneered that old familiar friendly face was made nearly unrecognizable by the malice with which it was imbued what do you want Eric asked. I want nothing yet. I come offering information. Seeing and recognizing Lewis in the crowd awakened my presence and consciousness within you. You may not yet fully realize the power you now hold. Knowing our mind, I know you're aware that all of us... The dark shroud seemed to light up with a multitude of human-sized faces projected onto small dark clouds. They all had their eyes closed. Eric recognized most of them. Without looking around, he knew the faces surrounded him in every direction. Behind him and closest were D'Andre and Claire. He saw Jessica just off to Chaos's right. James and Meng were nowhere amir amid the multitude. All those who died are now part of you, Chaos continued. We sleep until called upon. When we wake, we become aware. I would caution you against waking too many. It's crowded enough in here with but four of us. What is he saying? Eric thought. The thought echoed and boomed around him as thunderclaps, as though it had been spoken and amplified many times over. First of all, since we are in a mind construct, in your mind nonetheless, anything you think is actually voiced here. Secondly, what I'm saying is that these people, 
Chaos gestured around. Are for now only stored in your memory. If you call upon their knowledge, their lives, then your nanites activate their bio-patterns trying to remold you so they enjoy some form of renewed existence. We both can already feel the strain of your body trying to adjust to the four of us. True, Eric's body did feel fatigued. Why should you warn me about this? I carry on the struggle against you, Eric thought back. Two things. First, you're being exiled, so I win. Second, I have plans for you. Eric felt a sudden wind, though there was no sound of it. They come soon. This is my one chance to tell you things in private, so do not interrupt. Stash such things as I reveal away from even yourself. The dark veil had lightened to a gray, the faces fading from sight. Chaos. His face had changed. The malice had vanished, replaced by real concern. Adam? Eric ventured. It's me, Pullman, your old friend. Eric, I know Chaos's long-term plans. He's planted agents in Earth's populace. He plans to come back someday. Physically, I don't know how, but since his essence is in you, you're the gatekeeper, Eric. You have to keep him locked up. If you don't, all this starts over again, but with nothing to oppose him, Adam said. There's still Atmo, Eric replied. My time grows short. Hush! The veil of clouds and fog behind Adam began to swirl, black and gray, mixing together haphazardly. He doesn't fear Atmo for some reason. You have to carry on. You're our last hope against the returning chaos. Adam had floated to within an arm's reach of Eric and held out a small, opened box. Inside it lay all the knowledge he had just shared with Eric, and more. Grasping it, Eric looked up to see Adam drifting away from him once more. The clouds behind him grew darker, even as those to Eric's right and left grew purer right. Close it now. Close it and keep it hidden, Adam said pleadingly. Two forms began to appear on either side of Eric, dissolving out of the ether. As they took on more and more defined shapes, faces forming, Eric closed the box, opening a secret compartment in his mental library, in his mental command center. He placed the box inside, closing the compartment, and letting its very existence fade out of his memory, making it nearly cease to exist. As he turned back to face Adam, he saw a face once more filled with malice. To his right, though, now stood Mang James to his left. We found him, James, Mang said. What do you mean, found me? Eric asked. In your mind, you vanished. We couldn't find your consciousness, James replied. I knew where he was the whole time. You could have asked me, Chaos sneered. They all looked at him as he seemed to cringe and shrink ever so slightly. Meng and James returned their gaze to Eric. What was he telling you? James asked. He... he was saying... Eric began, suddenly feeling as though he couldn't remember something that had just happened, as though it had been a dream. I was trying to be helpful and share some vitally important information with him, Chaos said in his standard snobbish tone. Helpful how? Meng asked, turning to face Chaos. Suddenly Eric suffered a sense of vertigo. All at once he saw Chaos through his own eyes. At the same time he saw himself through James's eyes, Chaos through Meng's eyes, and himself through chaoses. All the images seemed 
to overlay themselves on his consciousness, yet each was crystal clear and separate. Breathe, Eric. Let it wash over you. Such an odd thought, James telling him to breathe in a place where air was non-existent. Oh, breathe nothing. Tap my mind. I know how to deal with this. It's how things always were for me, Chaos replied. Don't do it, Mang warned. Stop playing the doubting Thomas, fool. Eric, your mind is mixing your own focus with the real other consciousnesses that are here with you. Focus outwardly and suppress your own mind. That will bring calm to the storm. The wind had grown stronger, white lightning playing distinctly in the clouds behind Chaos as black lightning played in those behind James and Mang. Eric's head swam, reality seeming to spin around him. I haven't felt this bad since my first time getting drunk in college. <laughs> Eric said as he collapsed to his hands and knees, then falling backward against the base building on which he had caught himself. He could feel the building behind him, its solid con steel construction. It was cold to the touch, and yet it wasn't there. Focus outwardly here and suppress your own mind, Chaos repeated. It only confuses you right now. He's trying to take over your mind, Meng said. Don't listen to him. I couldn't take over your mind. I don't have a, that good a grip on it yet. I'd rather strengthen your mind now so it would be more useful to me later. You know I speak the truth. Eric did. The focus. Push your own mind down and exist here. I don't... I don't know how, Eric said as he swallowed nothing. James drifted closer to him then, kneeling beside him. Clear your mind, he said. Clear your mind, Chaos repeated. Clear your mind, Meng repeated, his gaze yet fixed on Chaos. Eric closed his eyes, still seeing everything clearly despite doing so. He inhaled and exhaled the vacuum around him. An old-school whiteboard was in front of his vision, in addition to the three men around him, the darkness that enveloped them and the Plymouth base surrounding him. On the whiteboard played out everything thought of in Eric's head. He lifted a hand toward it, clutching an eraser. He waved it at the board. He felt his thoughts calm slightly. Yes, good, Chaos mused. Keep going, James said from behind him. Beside him. Someone had run up to Eric on the base and was yelling at him, shaking his shoulders. He couldn't focus his eyes on the face. He wiped at the board again, pushing the person aside a bit. Regaining her footing, she placed herself back in Eric's direct vision, again shaking his shoulders as she shouted at him. If only she'd make sense. His mind quieted more. The lightning calmed. She got up and was yelling off into the distance. He swiped once more, the whiteboard now completely cleared, fading away. There was only the sod, mind space once more. It's okay now. Tap my mind. Eric passed his gaze from James to Meng and back to Chaos, still seeing each of them through each other's eyes. The vertigo remained and seemed to constantly roil his stomach. Strange, as he realized that here his body didn't have that part. Staring at Chaos, Eric extended his mind as a lance, pushing forward until he felt it pierce the nebulous collection of knowledge that was Chaos. There, oddly, was not shock or other discomfort to it. Let me show you, Chaos said both to and from Eric. They were all one person now. 
Eric felt as though he were going down a tall slide, yet stood still. Images, memories, information flashed past, flashed past his mind's eyes within his mind. There! This is what you need, Chaos stated. A file folder hung in the air before Eric. In a language he couldn't read and yet understand, the folder's label indicated that what that inside were instructions and information on how to deal with, cope, adjust to, and use high-conscious knowledge. Eric opened the folder to find it dissolving into a million billion pieces that flowed into his mind. The storm around them ceased abruptly. Eric recognized the mind space around him. It was a mental construct. The boulders they were on were their anchor points, whence they existed in Eric's mind. Oddly, they weren't tethered to his, as he expected. It will be different for you, Chaos said. The minds I was connected to in life were borrowed. Our minds are part of your universe. This place is a formless void for your use. Change it as you will to suit your needs. I only began the creation of the construct for you. Eric's non-stomach felt much better. He pushed himself up off the wall behind him that was no longer there. As he stood, he felt himself held down against a bed by many hands. As your mind and body are never totally disconnected, some of the crossover sensations are... disquieting, Chaos added. You okay now? James asked. Yeah, I'm fine, Eric replied. He gently floated back to where he had been. Meng yet stared at Chaos. There's something else you wanted to tell me, Eric said toward Chaos. Yes piece of reality he has to share, James affirmed. But first you need to realize something about yourself, Meng said. About the reality you now inhabit, Chaos added. But I'm now all of you, Eric continued. Your consciousness leads the many, James said, beginning, Meng finishing, with us always in tow. Now that you've reached out to our minds, permanent bonds have been formed. They will only grow stronger over time. Whatever was ours, Chaos said, is mine now, Eric finished. Every mind that had been connected to the TDF elite, or Chaos, in the past was now readily accessible to Eric. As though each were a file on a computer, he could call up and copy from them what he needed, and all without consciously doing so. Every mind... The nanites from the start, as a way of self-preservation for both host and symbiote, had shared across the Hanite, hive nanite consciousness, limited as it was, pieces of copies of each mind, chaos and his manipulation of that hive consciousness into a shared consciousness had inadvertently created a collection point for all those mind copies. It had been too much for his mind, he being unprepared for its onslaught. So now you see why I would rather help you? You serve as an ark now, holding each and every one of us from the very earliest in your mind. If you die, we die. So long as you survive, so do we. It is in my best interest to keep you alive and sane. In my last moment, even as I realized I was defeated, Adam, yet within me, forced my hand and had me connect to you, Eric. He had me develop your mind just enough to be able to handle all of us. We all came to you asleep, so you could slowly adjust. It is the only kindness you will ever receive from me, Chaos finished. 
Unfortunately, you know he's right, Meng said. He did you and all of us a favor. We owe our existence to that man, James added, gesturing with a thumb over his shoulder toward Chaos. Someday I'll collect on that debt, Chaos said. He mentioned Adam. Is he still alive? Eric thought, the thought again booming and echoing around him, coming back to his mind ears from walls that did not exist. I covet him and keep him for myself, Chaos said. He is part of who I am. I won't give him up. What about this information you yet have for us? Meng asked, refocusing the conversation. You see this, don't you, Eric? These two guard you. They keep one steady set of eyes on you, and the second guarding you against the chaos that threatens you. Keep always in mind your two guardians here. So long as they are with you, you are safe from my full influence, Chaos said. The message, Chaos, James chided, his caring gaze, still and always focused on Eric. Sending the more guards to the spaceport is foolhardy. My agents will succeed. You can only mitigate your losses there. And before you leave this planet, 37 more minds will join you, including Melinda's. James, Meng, and Eric were all shaken, their worlds of rock literally trembling beneath them. How could you know? Eric asked. Simple enough. As much as you have access to everyone's abilities and knowledge, so do I. It was a sort of Trojan horse I built into your mind space. If you are the chariot driver, I am your second, and so at times have my hands on the reins as well, Chaos said with a grin. You used my mind, Meng said. Through his eyes, Eric saw Chaos with a flashing hate. Yes, I did, Chaos said triumphantly. Eric became aware of seeing himself through James's eyes, but through Chaos's mind. It's nothing you yourself haven't experienced, Eric. You've already tapped them, too. But if I can see it, I can stop it, Eric said. No, you can't. Meng replied toward Chaos, I know this. By dabbling with the future, we can alter it only so much. Certain events are fixed. In my mind, they always appeared as train stations, tracks converging on them. Melinda, James said, concern in his non-voice. She'll be with us soon and forever, James. Her anguish will be over. I should think, Chaos said, bile in his voice. That would make you very happy. I would rather she lived out her days enjoying life, James said. Pansy, Chaos steered. They're beginning to worry about you, Eric. A wave of confusion swept over Eric, rippling reality around him. Who is? Your aides, the base doctors. You're giving them quite a scare. They can't figure out what's wrong with you, Chaos replied. What seemed a dream, a distant memory tugged at Eric. This isn't real, boomed and echoed around him. No, and that's the danger in coming here too often, Chaos said. It's something I never perfected. Maybe you can as you build this place as you see fit. You have to go back now, to look after everyone. And to survive, James said. We'll keep you safe, Meng added. You're creeping me out. Stop staring, Chaos said toward Meng. How do I get back? Eric asked. Close your eyes and remember that this isn't true reality, 
Chaos said. So Eric, looking around one last time, closed his eyes slowly, snapping them open to find himself staring up at the light of the base's medical facilities. He tried to sit up, but found his body held down by many hands. He blinked, looking around. There was Dr. Wilkins, his assistant, Nurse Chapel, and an assortment of other attendees holding him down. Wilkins had a hypo in his hand. Hold off with that, Doc, Eric said. Wilkins' eyes met Eric's, the hypo held midway to its intended injection site. Looking at the liquid within, Eric said, What is that? Something to try and shock you back to us. You had us worried, Wilkins replied. Thanks for the thought. I'm okay now. You can all let go, Eric commented. Wilkins looked around, meeting everyone's gaze, reading their concerns. If the man's aware and telling us he's all right, I'll believe him, Wilkins said. Their hands released Eric's form. He began to set up, Wilkins putting a hand on his shoulder. I would prefer you didn't just yet, sir. We don't know what happened to you. Eric did. He remembered everything. I'll be okay, Doc. I need to get back to the C&C. They only just began to miss you. They'll do without you as I make sure you're all right. Eric could see the concern in Wilkins' eyes. He could also see the medical commanding that he often found in the eyes of doctors who preferred or suggested something to him. After a moment, Eric said, Okay, but I need to relay some orders to the C&C as soon as I can. You know the hospital is shielded, Wilkins replied. I know. Get me either a wired comm unit or a good runner, Eric said. Understandably, Meng had felt that if they took any of Chaos's people alive, they would not only want to be able to work on them without falling under Chaos's gaze, but also retain some possibility of breaking his hold on them. The TDF only ever had the chance to study one Chaos elite, however, and Jessica was not to be turned back. When she returned to Chaos, she brought with her the technical and strategic information her Nanitic Hive had hacked from our computer network. In Chaos's outrage over failing to gain control over all of the TDF elite, in her bringing back their free will code, he killed her. It only drove him more insane, Adam within him railing against what he had done. But the war raged on, free will not turning the tide as the TDF had hoped. Only after Thermopylae did the tables again turn in favor of the TDF, and mostly then because of luck and the tremendous cost of four years of elite warfare, had Chaos been able to field a properly sized force against the Thermopylae outpost, Eric, Tim, Katie, and her aides would have likely been captured and turned, and the loss of munitions and machinery passing through that base at that moment would have seriously crippled the TDF in North America, possibly beyond recovery. As it was, the defeat of Matthew Welsh created uncertainty and fear and chaos. He slowly retreated his forces in an attempt to consolidate his seemingly vulnerable power base. It proved the break the TDF needed to regain its footing and return to the offensive. Chaos's words, Melinda will soon join us, still echoed in Eric's memory. Even if Chaos was right, he still had to try and protect their ships at Sheboygan, as well as Melinda. If she died, he would be the only progenitor left. 
When the comm unit arrived, Eric ordered a company on deployment, half as an advance guard to depart immediately for the spaceport, and the other to escort the Biodome shipment. It won't make any difference, came an unbidden thought. It was dual-toned, one gloating, and the other sorrowful. He still had to try. That night, as the last of the biodome equipment was being loaded into the cargo ship, an IED went off. It had been precisely placed on the ship's hull to breach the fuel tanks. A second device went off a few minutes later, igniting the leaking fuel, causing a chain reaction. Both devices had been placed days before. Melinda had rushed to the scene after the first blast, trying to both take control of the situation and run damage control. Reports relayed that time and again she had run into the Inferno to try and bring out personnel. She had not reached out to Eric or James then. She had simply focused on the task before her. It had gotten hotter and hotter around her, becoming harder and harder to breathe, despite her nanites. The only hope Eric had the next day as he helped exhume what was left of her body from the wreck was that the nanites had eased her pain, even as they failed from exhaustive use. Eric remembered this decades later as Melinda's mind shared its memories with his. She had done her best but failed, and Eric had felt her pass. The only way to describe the experience is as a season. As the last warm day of fall fades, the setting sun, you always know that it is the last. That night, not much colder, nor darker than the previous, is yet colder and darker than it has a right to be. It is the subconscious knowledge that that day, that night, marks the changing of seasons. So it was for Eric when Melinda died. A radical right-ring group had claimed responsibility for the action that next day. Officially, Chaos and his organization were no more. With Chaos's memories, an open book to Eric, he knew better. It had been Chaos's new plan set in motion. The group was only one of several meant to create a climate of hatred which a centrist group could then use to saddle Earth's population, riding them into power. Thankfully, no further attacks came as the TDF redoubled its efforts, seeking to get off-planet before another disaster befell them. That they would not fight for... They would not fight Earth's citizens, not even at the expense of mission-critical equipment. Earth had to be allowed to heal. The future still being a more fluid thing than not, Eric had doubled guard patrols around the TDF's portion of the spaceport just in case. His personnel had already taken over guard detail at the spaceport by executive order of the Prime Minister, though doubling the guard around the TDF's craft seemed prudent. Over the next few weeks, the crowds at both the Plymouth base and the Sheboygan spaceport continued to grow, both in size and intensity. Makeshift stages were set up where organizers like Lewis as well as celebrities and co-opted political figures, gave speeches and led the crowds in anti-TDF chants. It was demoralizing, but couldn't be helped. They had a point. Between chaos and TDF casualties alone, over 500,000 people had died. Add in civilian collateral damage, and that number was doubled. And then there were the cleansing programs of chaos, that were only now coming fully to light. The TDF was the only target left for the survivors, their only pariah onto whom they could unburden their frustration and tears.
In the growing crowds outside of the Plymouth base, veterans showed up from around the globe. Militiamen and women, as well as others who served alongside TDF personnel. They withstood the same rhetoric, these Minutemen and women, as those in the TDF. They're braver than us now, though, Eric thought, looking at them one day. We leave this place soon. These supporters have to live in a culture that hates them for what they did. But of course, no matter the opinions or the events surrounding the exile, its day finally came. It was thankfully a pleasant day, the last trucks loaded in sunshine. As they mounted up, Eric stood at the gate, gazing across the crowd. As each truck came to the gate, pausing for security space in between before proceeding, Eric quickly jumped onto the running boards, shaking hands and trying to lift spirits. His best commander yet alive, Amy, that general from the long-ago DOD meeting at NAR Defense, led the convoy to the spaceport. Eric was taking the last vehicle out, bringing up the rear. After about half the column had left, reports began coming in of people cutting through the fences of the base and entering the base proper. Collapsing bag! Eric ordered. It was an eventuality he had discussed with every cargo transport and escort crew. Defenses would be pulled to a perimeter around the departing convoy, growing smaller as more personnel were taken with their vehicles. The perimeter would shrink from the inside, closing to the guardhouse, until its people and Eric mounted up and headed out. He anticipated clashes with protesters, but hoped none would materialize. About one-third of the front wall surrounding the guardhouse had been built into solid fortifications. The crowds out front should not see the collapsing bag. The strategy, gracefully, worked. Lewis, at the forefront of the in-base protesters, kept his promise of those weeks ago. Thankfully, the members of the TDF's non-Nanetic Corps Eric had decided to place in Earth's population had snuck out of the base undetected, over the weeks prior, often jumping off transport at opportune points in their nightly routes to the spaceport. Those people would help to someday provide a covert foothold by which the TDF, maybe even the elites, could re-emerge. It would be a long time coming, though. When at last the end could be seen by the protesters outside the gatehouse, the crowd noise reached a fever pitch. As Eric mounted the last transport popping out of the top gunner hatch, he turned back and caught Lewis's gaze. Safe travels, sir, Lewis said. The vehicle's engine started idling it forward. See you on the other side. Lewis snapped to attention, as did all his fellows around him. The veterans, seeing the end had arrived, formed ranks. They, too, stood at attention, saluting. Eric faced them, snapped a salute, letting it fall slowly. They maintained their stance. Feeling what fate these brave, loyal men and women would face, Eric could not bring himself to tap Meng's power to confirm it. Instead, he slowly turned and faced the protesters. As he did, they fell silent. We did our best, Eric boomed, loudly enough to be heard by those deep in the crowd. I only wish we could have done more. He nudged the driver inside the transport and said simply, It's time. Let's go. The vehicle jerked, coming into a steady roll. Lewis and his people stepped aside, releasing their grip over the crowd. 
It surged into the road behind Eric's transport, filtering into and claiming what remained in the now deserted base. What the TDF couldn't take with them, that was of strategic or military value, had already been destroyed or surreptitiously shipped back to our defense for recycling. What was left on the base, the people could have. The only cordon Lewis's men maintained was around the yet saluting veterans. Perhaps they'll be all right. Eric thought, facing backwards as they gained speed away from the base, the crowds outside of it quickly seeming to shrink in stature to the naked eye. The convoy's route to the Sheboygan spaceport necessarily took some back roads, but stayed to main highways as much as possible to try and avoid choke points. Having heard word from Amy, Eric knew the route was being lined by people, protesters and supporters alike. News helicopters flew overhead, tracing the route by air. Eric began to feel uncomfortable in the growing carnival atmosphere. En route, Eric saw, from Highway 23, Adam's boyhood home, where he, James, and Eric had spent many a weekend, day and night. It passed Eric into history. Familiar farm fields and other points of reference passed Eric by, the only constant, the transport truck in front of him. After more turns and passings, the spaceport finally came into view, the many space-capable craft sitting along its various runways. As he came closer, Eric could hear the roar of a crowd. Once he could see the entrance in the distance, he ordered out a guard for the rear so that he could take up position inside the spaceport grounds. As his vehicle zoomed up the line, the crowd noise grew, Eric eventually being able to see that there, unlike the base, it was being held back by TDF elite forces. More than just insults flew here. Either Lewis and his people haven't gotten here yet, Eric thought, or they were never meant to be here. His latter assessment filled with the attack they had already suffered at the spaceport. Waved through the gate, Eric Straver quickly brought the vehicle up beside the field HQ and command tent. Amy had erected roughly midfield. We're getting there. Nothing to report we didn't expect she said, glancing up from a tablet as he hopped out of the transport. She was as efficient as ever, looking practically no older than when Eric had first met her, with very few strands of gray that had worked their way into her hair prior to her becoming an elite were now gone. How much longer? Eric asked. Probably six hours. How was the drive? Amy asked. Sad, Eric replied, gazing around the field. After a moment, he turned back toward Amy and found her eyes still on him. You doing all right? she asked. Anything I can do to help? Eric could see the concern in her face. Eric held their silent gaze, but for a moment more before saying, I'm okay. Once we're f safely spaceborne, I'll be better. She simply nodded in reply, returning attention to her tablet as the display continued to update with the progress around them. Amy knew, as well as Eric, why space would be the place they could relax. They would be beyond the grip of, and only getting further away from, any danger that yet lurked for them here. Taking a moment and tapping Meng's prescience, Eric saw a multitude of images flash before his mind. Some held violence, though most didn't. Opening his mind to the sea of information that flowed beneath the images, Eric could feel that no more mission-critical equipment would be lost here on Earth. For that, he was grateful. 
He stayed at the CP, knowing that his presence would only distract his people from what they must now accomplish. The true test of a leader came in their ability to hold themselves from action at times like this. Updates from the port's entrance mentioned a lack of direct violence, save a few thrown bottles, as the final transport and its accompanying guard entered the grounds. Finally, the gates closed. Eric had not yet awoken Melinda's mind, but he was dearly tempted to. He wanted to know how his people were holding up what was going on in their heads. Please, old friend, not yet, came James's voice. Even though if Eric woke Melinda's mind, it meant she and James could be together. It also meant that she was truly dead. And that was a reality neither Eric nor James was quite ready to accept. The hours ticked by slowly, material vanishing into the holes of ships as the crowd outside gathered. Helicopters still flew circles, but respected the airspace of the spaceport. Eric, in talking with State Patrol head Ronald Bellamy, had assured him that the TDF would be able to hold their own as far as security of the spaceport went. The sun was on its way toward the horizon now. Perhaps, as the ultimate personal loss, Eric had not taken the time the night previous to enjoy his last Terran sunset. They would be gone before this one came. On the screens in the mobile CP, ships began lighting up green, showing that they were ready except for the loading of their crew. Eric had ordered all TDF personnel to enjoy every last breath of Terran air they could so most stood ready in assembly areas just outside their ships. We're at 66%, Eric, Amy reported as she looked over her shoulder. About how much longer, you figure? Two hours, 33 minutes. Amy's logistical skills were second to none, part of her nanetic gift. Morale, he asked. The clouds gather overhead, but the sun's still shining. Knowing Amy hadn't meant literal sunshine, Eric's gaze was nonetheless drawn to the late afternoon sun of Wisconsin. It would be the same sun from Mars, yet one completely different and alien. Years twice as long there, you know, Eric commented. I don't know if I want to live to be 200, Amy joked. They both knew it didn't work like that. It was perfectly timed levity, though something Amy had been getting exceedingly good at around Eric lately. We'll need a new calendar, Eric said. I've been working on one, Amy replied. I thought you might be, Eric said as he returned his gaze to the tablet in Amy's hands. Another ship's icon went green. Two hours, thirty minutes, right on schedule. It would be getting on toward mid-evening before they left, but still before sunset. I'll just get in the way, won't I? Eric asked no one in particular. Amy, cycling through the ship manifest monitors, said simply, Yep, stay here and sit on your hands. A thought he had never had before popped into his mind. Has it been hard for you? He asked her. Amy tapped into an enviro-level view of one ship, Noah's Ark. It had in its hold half of a duplicate set of animals and plants held in suspended animation. Has what been hard? An anomaly caught Amy's eye, causing her to tap out an alert to the ship's crew. Being under someone else's command again, especially one who never held staff rank anywhere. Her head came up 
as she turned around and looked Eric straight in the eyes, lowering the tablet beside her. Eric, I've served under many a commander, staff officers and not, who were less capable than any of you progenitors. You people led well, had good sense about you, and always looked out for the grunt. It has been and continues to be an honor to serve with you, sir, she said as she straightened to attention. Her tablet chirped. Before she could get back to it, Eric gently put a hand on her shoulder. Thanks. Really? Amy smiled. The few times Eric had seen that smile beneath her loose hair floated forward in his memory. Only on special occasions did she literally let her hair down. Brown, brown auburn shoulder-length hair with gentle waves framed her blue and green eyes at such times. Despite the few years she had on Eric, he still found her, in those moments, enrapturing. She returned her attention to her tablet, reading a report from Noah's Ark. It had been a temperature variance in a cryobank, but was now corrected. Eric returned to his vigil at the CP. The remaining two and a half hours passed by relatively quietly. The crowds increased, the news helicopters circled like vultures around an animal near death. Eric simply took in every available moment, every last sight and sound that he could. Had he wanted to, he could have sent his mind into battle consciousness, slowing down time almost indefinitely. Doing so would only prolong his fate, he realized. Best to let it come of its own accord. Finally, at 6.45 p.m. Central Standard Time, the last ship to be loaded indicated ready. It was time. Amy, please get the Prime Minister on the line. Make sure this is recorded, Eric said. Sure thing, Eric. He knew even then that someday his words, all of this, would be important. Got him, Amy said, handing a headset to Eric. Sir, Eric began, fitting the device over his ear. Eric, is this the call I've been dreading? The Prime Minister asked. I think so, sir. We're all loaded, ready to depart. <sighs> then it's done. Eric, you know I've never fully agreed with this. I know, sir, but it had to be done this way, Eric replied. It's a sad day for Earth and humanity, my friend. Officially, I thank you for complying, such as you have, with the request of this government. Unofficially, I just want you to know that you will be missed, and by more than just me. That's appreciated, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Still all business. Eric, what I've done is going to cost me more than a little bit of political clout, but it's the right thing. I've arranged a special send-off. You'll understand. Once it's over, you may load your ships. Godspeed, Eric Pullman. May you have clear skies and fair winds. Thank you, sir. I just wish we could have done more for Earth, Eric replied. Eric, you saved us from tyranny. You've done more than anyone could have asked. Watch the skies. And goodbye. Goodbye, Eric replied as the channel was closed. After the Articles of Exile had been signed, Eric had surreptitiously made his way to the Prime Minister's office and had a long conversation with him. This brief exchange had mainly been waving out the window. All personnel, 
Eric said, keying into the main TDF frequency, sending his voice to the PA system in every ship. I just finished talking with the Prime Minister of Earth. He sends his wishes for a safe journey. He has also promised to send off to remember. By my feeling, we should look eastward. He let the channel idle as he, too, looked toward the eastern sky. Slowly, a growl could be heard. It quickly gained volume as a wing of fighter aircraft came into view. Eric, with his enhanced vision, immediately recognized each craft. In trailing positions were aircraft representing every continent, recommissioned during the last months of the war. An American F-14, a Russian MiG, British, Indian, Moroccan, and Australian fighters all were following a NAR trans-atmosphere fighter with TDF markings. As the wing came overhead, the TDF jet hit its afterburners and climbed straight up towards space. Knowing the design of the jet intimately, having designed it and flown it in combat during the war, Eric knew it might very well be waiting for them in orbit. As the rumble of the afterburners faded, along with the remnants of the sonic booms, Eric heard the crowd outside the port explode for a moment. This, an honor guard for fallen airmen, would indeed cost the Prime Minister. All personnel mount up. Begin pre-flight checks and depart in pre-arranged order. See you all in orbit. Even as Eric set down the headset, he could feel Bellamy coming up behind him. As of this order, Eric's men handed over base security to the local police. Mr. Pullman, Bellamy said as he approached, extending a hand. Sir, Eric replied, gripping the outstretched hand, the CP is yours. Amy and her people were snapping shut the last cases containing sensitive tactical material. Thank you, sir. We'll watch your six. As Eric began to turn away, Bellamy regripped Eric's hand, grasping it in both of his. And thank you for what you did here. For us. My son was with you at Thermopylae. He died a few weeks ago when the attack happened here. He proudly served the TDF. You people did something for us, those who stay. That we'll never be able to repay. Thank you. Eric saw the resemblance now. He saw the sleeping face in his mind. It would be easy enough to awaken the mind and let it talk to its father one last time. Not he, James Menger Chaos, thought it a sound idea, though. It would only confuse the man and cause him more pain than was already within him. Clasping the man's hands, Eric said, No. Sir, thank you. Releasing their grip, they both took a step back. Bellamy straightened slightly and snapped a salute. Eric returned it, turned smoothly on his heel, and headed off towards his transport. All around the spaceport grounds, he could see men and women loading into ships. It was truly a marvel of what humanity could do when it didn't need to focus on war. During the many years of peace, various companies worked to realize the dream of the machines now crowding Sheboygan's spaceport. These monstrously-sized ships seemed to defy gravity itself when they took to the air. And, further yet, the real accomplishment was in how they then went from flying bricks in atmosphere to space-borne ships, seeming to glide effortlessly higher and higher in the sky until at last it lost its color, gravity its grip. 
The first ship, a small one with a crew of only twenty, was already taxiing onto the main runway for takeoff. Erics was to be the last ship off the ground. As tradition dictated, first in and last out. Amy, still have that tablet handy? he asked, standing beside the New Horizon. Right here, she said, her gaze fixed on it. Let me know when the last person is strapped in. The reason didn't need to be voiced. As a commander herself, Amy understood. Will do. With everything loaded and secured, personnel boarded and strapped in quickly. The medium-sized transports were now lining up and taxiing onto one of the spaceport's three one-ways. Every few seconds, a new roar of engines flared, another ship streaking down a runway and off toward orbit. Looking around, Eric allowed himself to take in the grandness of this place. Not thirty years ago, it had been little more than a single landing strip, and even that mainly used for the launch of experimental and hobby rockets. As the space industry had taken off, such spaceports as this had rapidly been developed. Sheboygan's was one of the largest ports throughout the world. It was so, in part, because of the Plymouth TDF base, and the base partly because of the spaceport. Thirty years ago, such a day as this, such a gathering of ships and such a launch of personnel into space would have been a pipe dream. But here it was, a reality. What governments for years had promised a voyage to Mars had never happened. And now they were setting off to create a permanent colony, plant their flag, and call it home. Amy tapped Eric's shoulder. It's only you and me. Everyone else is strapped in. Eric looked at her, took another long look around the port, and then turned, then returned his gaze to Amy. Let's go home, he said, gesturing through the hatch. Following the queue, Amy stepped into the new horizon. Back at the sea, Pierre could see Bellamy and his people watching every ship as they streaked upward. In looking around, Eric had caught his last glimpse of the trees swaying in the breeze, the robins, cardinals, blue jays, and goldfinches flitting around, agitated to flight by the noise of departing spacecraft. An arm popped back out of the ship. Coming? asked Amy's voice after she tapped Eric's shoulder. It could almost have been within Eric's head, though he was sure it hadn't been. He grasped her hand, stepped into the ship, turned and sealed the door. As it pulled itself fully closed, he heard the mechanical locks and the hiss of atmosphere as the entire ship now sealed itself from the outside. While the rest of the crew would be in seats throughout the ship for liftoff, Eric and Amy headed to the bridge, their seats awaiting them there. Climbing up the various submarine-like ladders, they passed through the eight decks leading up to the bridge. The lifts were yet locked down prior to liftoff and couldn't be used, not that Eric minded the chance to see some of his people on the way up. Conventional wisdom had initially said such ship design based on an up and a down, as with the plant's gravity, wouldn't work in space. Amazingly, conventional wisdom was very far off. By accident, one of the early large cargo aero vehicles had lost attitude control and been sent to an aspiring, spiraling trajectory while in low Earth orbit. But instead of being detrimental to the ship and her crew, it had created simulated gravity via centrifugal force. 
The ship corkscrewed along its course, bottom hull outward, in such a manner that it pressed its crew down into the floor. So would these ships fly, corkscrewing their way to Mars, allowing them to work in and get used to the Martian-like gravity. When at last Amy and Eric arrived on the bridge, the New Horizons commander was waiting for them. Ma'am, sir, your seat's right up front. She pointed them at two seats directly behind the bridge's front viewports. Should offer a good view. As they began strapping themselves in, the New Horizons flight crew ran through her pre-flight checks. Noticeably, only from the windows, the ship's landing gear extended further, bringing the ship up from its kneeling position. Have you ever done this before? Amy asked, adjusting her harness, a small amount of apprehension showing on her face and in her voice. Actually, no. I've flown plenty of, plenty of sorties, but never pierced through the blue, Eric replied, tugging down hard on his right shoulder strap. You? He looked over at Amy, some of the color gone from her face. For such a person as her, with all the combat and leadership experience, to appear scared, what she showed would only be a small portion of what she was feeling. Eric finished checking his harness and again looked back at Amy. She gripped the buckles at her chest, gazing out the viewport as one of the larger transports shot past the tree line. Her knuckles went white as it passed directly in front of them. Gently, Eric reached over, loosening her left hand, holding it softly. Hey, look at me, he said, after she kept staring forward. All you have to do is sit back and relax. It'll be fine. Pardon me, needed a drink. Does it hurt? She said, turning her head toward him. You've been on a roller coaster? He asked. She shook her head, swallowing hard. Couldn't ever get myself to do it. Silly, right? She asked, giggling slightly and smiling nervously. I mean, I've done halo jumps, water approaches, been outgunned and surrounded through just about every of the most stressful situations imaginable. Couldn't ever get myself on a roller coaster. They, they scare the crap out of me. She furrowed her brow a bit, biting her upper lip. Eric just smiled, squeezed her hand gently, and said, It'll be fine. I promise. Adding, You never forget your first. Horizontal takeoffs were much gentler than the old verticals, but still packed a punch when the engines first kicked on. They kept you in your seat cushions until just before you breached Atmo. Over her shoulder, Tina, the New Horizons commander, said, you two ready? Holding on to Amy's hand, Eric replied, Good to go. Were they not both nanetics, holding hands during takeoff would be a very bad idea. As it was, Eric held on. All right, pre-flight checks are go. All passengers are strapped in. Board is green. New Horizon taxing onto runway one east, Tina said. The view out the ship's window shifted left as the New Horizon lined up for takeoff. The ship ahead of them, Noah's Ark, waited patiently for its turn. Over the calm came the call. Noah's Ark to New Horizon. The hyena is clear. We are beginning launch sequence. Fair winds, Noah's Ark. See you in orbit, Al-Hassan, said Tina. The engines of Noah's Ark ignited a deep cherry red and then blossomed into pure white. 
The ship's nose tilted up as the thrust shot it down the runway, leaving the ground after only a few hundred feet. Quickly, its trajectory slanted upward, taking it thousands of feet into Earth's atmosphere before it ran out of tarmac. Noah's Ark was the last one beside us, sir. Thought we'd give you a little preview, Tina said. Over the radial, Al-Hassan, Noah's Ark's commander, reported, Climb good. Engines green. Passing launch window in three, two, one. New horizon. We are clear. Thank you, Hassan. Ten four. Glancing as much as she could over her shoulder, Tina said to Eric, Sir? Signaling with his free hand, Eric said, Engage. In their reflections on the four windows, Eric saw the entire flight crew smile. Tina nodded, faced forward, and went shipwide, saying, Bridge to all personnel, hold tight. Here we go. Switching off the comm, All right, starting engines. Her first officer, Matu Getch, called out over the low hum of the ship, Power plant green. Throttling up, Tina replied. Engine noise increased. Suddenly the ship lurched ahead, the nose pointing upward. The trees disappeared as the sky filled the front viewports. Lift off, engines at max. Clouds grew larger and larger until just one filled the front viewports. Eric still held Amy's hand, could feel her squeezing it. They were pressed back into their seats, the automatic harness tensors taking up slack. The cloud passed around them, the sky returning to its blue. Slowly it faded, darker and darker. As slowly the pressure on them let up, easing them all forward in their seats. The view ahead changed all at once to pure black studded by countless stars. Amy gasped. Seeing space from space was breathtaking, especially the first time. No night on Earth could ever compare to the clear, unaltered beauty of the universe as seen from space. Sir, Tina said, you'll want to see this. The view out the front shifted, Tina changing the flight path slightly. A blue arc dipped back into view along the ship's right. Oh my, Amy murmured. There, parallel to their new course, was a small fighter craft a few thousand feet below them. It dipped one wing the other, repeating several times. Tina mimicked. The fighter slowly descended, re-entering Earth's atmosphere. Tina brought the ship back to its original course, pointing it out into space. All ships report in, Eric, Tina said. Then, switching on the ship's comm, Bridge to all personnel, we have achieved orbit. All ships report in. You may secure from launch stations. What does that mean? Amy asked, her tone hushed by the view once more in front of them, one that now included a fleet of ships. It means, Eric said, hitting the harness release on his chest with his left hand. Amy finally let go of his hand, looked down at her harness, likewise popped it loose. Tina, remind me again. When we begin to corkscrew? After our exit trajectory from Earth's orbit, about 15 minutes. That, mean, that meant 15 minutes to enjoy the weightlessness of space. Eric pushed off his seat, hovering mid-cabin. Gesturing to Amy, Come on up, air's fine. A grin filled his face. In this moment, there was only joy. No war, no loss of friends and home. Only the giddy, childlike joy of space weightlessness. 
Slowly, Amy lifted herself from her seat, flailing slightly as she lost contact with it. The lift will be secured until we achieve full corkscrew. Feel like going for a fly? Amy's face contorted in confusion. Phrases like go for a walk or go for a swim made sense. Go for a fly really didn't at first. Her face lit up as realization dawned. A smile to match Eric's finding a line on her face. Yeah. As they left the bridge to explore the new horizon, Tina made a fleet white broadcast. Pardon me. This is Admiral Tina Villanueva at all ships. We are reporting in and green. New Horizon is assuming lead position. Corkscrew in 15 minutes. Lunar slingshot trajectory in 20. Stay sharp. Deflector fields up. The TDF fleet formed behind the New Horizon, heading away from Earth into the darkness of space. Their path would, in a few days, orbit them around the moon, gaining momentum to slingshot out toward Mars. It would be a two-month trip, their journey to their new home. For the moment, few thought so far ahead. Throughout the small fleet of Terran ships, people simply enjoyed the carefree indulgence and freedom of space-born weightlessness. That was Chapter 42, Spaceport Sheboygan. And why was my throat dry? <laughs> Thank you for sticking with me through my stumbles and uh, my little drinks of water. Again, if you have any comments you would like to share on this episode, find me on Facebook or on Twitter. You can do that through my website, narclaninc.com, or email me directly at chrisreadsbook at narclaninc.com. If you enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed this podcast, the whole series, the best thing you could do to help me right now to support me is to share this with a friend with a family member with somebody you know a co-worker share it with your dog he might like it <laughs> but anyway thank you again for coming back week after week for listening and for supporting me by being part of this adventure part of this podcast and hopefully we will see you again next week have a good one <laughs>